When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson, And me, Ian Morris. And it's, as always, brought to you by you. Thank you to our patrons supporting us every week at patreon.com slash uktech. This is your extended ad-free version of this week's show if you're one of our patrons. But if you're not and would like to get those versions, uh, you can join us for no commitment at all um, at patreon.com slash uktech. Thank you to everyone who is supporting us there. Let's get into the news. Um, Now, this week we had a range of things we could talk about relating to the Facebook, the ongoing Facebook data scandal. We're only going to pick out one, the most relevant to us here in the UK, I believe. And, uh, And that is that Facebook has confirmed that instead of its CEO, it will be Chief Technology Officer Mike Schroepfer. Uh, who's going to give evidence in front of a UK parliamentary hearing in late April. As it's pretty widely known by now, this obviously comes in the wake of the allegations that millions of Facebook users had their um, had their data misused. Um, and we actually also know this week that maybe about a million Brits have been affected, so, so more than we originally thought. Now, Facebook's uh, CEO Zuckerberg said in March that he wasn't going to appear before a UK parliamentary committee to give evidence after Damien Collins, who's the head of the committee, invited him to answer for what he called a catastrophic failure of process. Now, we laughed a little bit about the fact that you know, Zuckerberg said he would make these appearances if he was the most appropriate person to do so. It's like, well, who's more appropriate than the founder and the guy and that owns the company, yeah. the guy that, that that runs the business, yeah, and and is also like majority shareholder on on their board. Like he has ultimate control. He's accountable to no one. He can't be fired. So, like, who is more? who's better placed but anyway he seems to think that um he will go and do the stuff in the u.s with congress um and he's he's going to be doing that in april um, as well zuckerberg that is um, but here in in the uk the cto is going to come instead now i thought this is significant because it gives us an opportunity to find out a little bit more about who this guy is and what we can maybe expect this hearing to involve so I looked up who he is. He's been at the company since 2008. He's held the CTO role since 2013. Um, Between 2008 and 2013, he was the vice president of engineering at Facebook. So he he's very much going to be able to talk from the you know from the technical aspect of the show. uh, Sorry, of the show of the um, uh, of of the of the site. Yeah, exactly the platform. Like he'll have an incredibly deep understanding of how tech, uh, facebook works on a technical level probably relating to all aspects of its technical functioning what he may not and and this is purely my opinion my hypothesis you know what he may not necessarily pre- pre- be prepared for is how many of the committee's questions are going to focus not so much on the technical side but on the moral side on the issues of uh the the fa- the, the platform's alleged um role in you know subverting democratic progress and process uh, and all of these allegations you know that's not something that a cto 
tends to be involved in you know that's often more a coo or obviously the ceo's job neither of whom are going to come to the uk or at least have said they're going to come to the uk and speak to the committee so i do sort of you know worry slightly on his behalf that it's kind of being like sent into the lion pit you know with with one weapon and no shield i'm not sure if i agree with that have you i mean they're those committees are not exactly toothy i mean they might be intimidating to people that haven't done them before but really they're asking questions it's it, uh, it if uh, if there was going to be an indictment or a you know a, a, you know if they were thinking about seriously changing legislation then i could see well even the, i mean legislation's not a problem if it, if there was a chance that he would walk away from that you know and do jail time i could see why but ultimately they're just going to ask questions which he will obfuscate in the most obvious way i mean I, we've seen this so many times we've seen it with um, you know, the uh, phone hacking, stuff like that, and, you know, all sorts of technical stuff that has been called in front of the uh, parliament for questions. It's just, uh, it, you know, they just have a way, don't they, of making it sound like, well, you know, uh, we were aware that this was um, a possibility, but of course our customers are expected to follow our terms and conditions and this was outside of that or whatever. You know, it will just be, the whole thing will just be passed off from, blame to blame um and i find that kind of depressing we've seen it all before and nothing will happen and uh gdpr might help a bit but we don't know where we are with gdpr in general once we leave the eu well let's let's um put that side of things on the back burner for a sec because you know I, i i still sort of disagree that this will be that they will be slightly toothy with him because part of the problem is they don't want him. They didn't invite him um, specifically. They wanted Zuckerberg. And I think that he'll, he, I honestly feel he's going to get quite a hard time. You know, I think that Damien Collins particularly can be a prickly guy. Um, and I think that the, the lack of Zuckerberg and the presence of what he in the previous hearing um, when he was grilling uh, Christopher Wiley, the whistleblower, he described as just one of his juniors, you know, which is fairly unfair because a CTO is one of the highest positions in a company. Sure. But, but still, he is junior to, to Zuckerberg and it's Zuckerberg that they wanted to answer for all this. So I think he's going to get a little bit of a grilling. I really do. Maybe, but I don't, I, he'll be prepared for that. And um, he'll be really been lots briefed and briefed and briefed by his lawyer and uh, he won't say anything. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to get us anywhere. I think that's the primary point I want to make. It's not going to get us anywhere. I think that um, asking questions is fine, but we know what they're going to say because it's what they've already said. Ian, last week we talked a little bit about the EU domain name system um, after Brexit. So the yes. idea that UK individuals that have registered a .eu domain name may lose those domains or certainly lose access to renew them post-Brexit. And yes. you've had a little update on this. Well, I had a little... So I think I had a little chat to a friend of mine who is uh, who works for a company that handles d- domains, uh, lots of them uh, in a very high-profile manner. Um, now, originally, this story... Um, I, I read it on the register. I don't know where we got our link from. Um, but they were talking about, the headline was, Europe dumps 300,000 UK-owned .eu domains in the Brexit bin, um, which is fine. Now, it, it, during this story, they had also mentioned that the um, the EU had not mentioned 
uh, this to um, however the company's or the, however the thing is called EURID, which is the uh, registry um, for EU domains, um, and they hadn't been consulted. Was what they said in the register story. Um, so I was sent a link from the from that registrar, um, and they, so ultimately I think it's quite clear what's going to happen long term no matter what the eu says about the uk and its involvement with that post brexit um essentially my friend said it would be a huge security risk if you were to just stop people from renewing domains so say for example you're um a bank or 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 anything that deals with customer details or whatever you know uh, you, if, if say your domain happened to register on the day the UK leaves the EU, uh, then you wouldn't be able to renew it, and you would then not be able to access the domain. And they, they, whilst they could probably do that and take away EU domains from businesses like that, they would still have to hold them back for a very long period of time in order for them to not be then maliciously reused. So, for example, if if some if I'm if I'm a bank and I lose my EU domain, then the next day someone from the EU comes along and decides that they want to set up a bank with the same name um, and defraud a bunch of people. Then that's obviously why that isn't a very good idea and why it probably won't happen. So what is more likely is that, and this is I think this is always probably going to be the case. It's a lot of bluster between both the EU and the UK, but essentially it's more likely that we will lose the right to register.eu domain names on Brexit Day, if that's what we're going to call it, which we shouldn't because it makes me want to hit a wall. Um, or, uh, and, then, and then you would be able, you w- would probably be able to carry on renewing the ones that you already own. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe, maybe, they, maybe they might do it so that the transition would be the amount of time that you would be allowed to do that, giving you say two years to stop using that domain and pass people over to others. Or they may just allow existing domains to be re-renewed indefinitely, which would be more sensible. The, the, I, I suppose this, this story was interesting to me because usually with these EU stories, and they're not all relevant to our podcast because they're not all tech, but what you get is you get the EU will say one thing and the UK will say something different. Um, so the UK will say something like, we're going to stop... EU fishermen fishing in our seas, and the EU will say, well, blah, 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 you can't do that because of this, 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 and this. And most of the time, we don't sort of understand what the truth of that matter is. In this particular case, it happens that it's sort of, it's a bit more logical than most, and um, having spoken to a friend of mine who does do this for a living, uh, he, he was pretty clear that realistically, they're not going to be able to cut us off. So it kind of feels like, you can use this as a sort of learning thing for what will eventually end up happening with all of this Brexit nonsense and the fact that ultimately it's two people fighting and then they'll probably come to a moderate middle ground at some point. doesn't make it any less annoying, but even so. Well, Richard's saying in the chat room that um, that he's been looking into transferring their com- his company's .eu domain to uh, their new company opened in Estonia so that they don't lose... The presence. Yes. And actually, none of this is really a problem anyway, because there are companies um, such as the one that my friends worked for, which I won't mention because he didn't tell me this on the record. He told me it as a friend asking. Um, but they will act as an intermediary for you. And you can register any domain in that country. I think they'll probably charge you a bit more for that. Um, but uh, essentially, they will act as a company holding a domain name for you in that country or 
in the, this case in that in that group of countries. So I don't think that anyone who wants to keep their .eu domain name is going to particularly struggle. I may now register one just to see what happens. Um, I don't know how much they cost. They're probably not that expensive. Um, but I don't know. Maybe maybe we should get textmessage.eu. Well, Richard's saying that it, it costs about 100 euros to open a company in Estonia. And then right. once you have that, it, it can take ownership of the domain being yes. you know, in a, a European country and therefore wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be running afoul of any future hardline rules, which is an interesting way to, to do it. And, and kind of, you know, it might be a, a decent insurance policy to do that if you were in one of these businesses that that really could be put at quite r- serious risk um, in the event of this this kind of hard cut off happening. Yeah. I mean, mm. it's ultimately this this if you were to just cut people off, it would be really quite bad it would it would be it would be like stopping us from making phone calls to europe or something like that i don't know quite what the analog of it would be or the, the, the comparison would be um but you know you're, you're basically really putting businesses at risk and, and that's not i don't think that anyone in the eu or the uk wants that um and it would be quite sort of small-minded and childish to behave like that and I, and while the register did take the eu uh, to pieces about it um i don't believe that that's the ultimate end game for the eu anyway i don't think they would be so you know mindlessly cruel or petty minded as to go for that well figures from e-marketer this uh, this week ian predicts that more than a fifth of all advertising spend in the uk will be on social networks in 2020 That might not sound that interesting on its own, but it means that social media will overtake television to become the UK's biggest advertising format in two years. Spending on networks such as Facebook, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, and Snapchat will hit 20.2%, up from 16.1% this year, according to The Telegraph's reporting. Uh, And it would be at that point that it would overtake broadcast television spending, which would decline from 19.6% this year to 17.8%. Now, digital spending across desktop and mobile, which, you know, includes paid search, has been outstripping TV for a number of years in the UK and other large markets like the US. In fact, last year... According, there was one major report that showed that mobile, specifically mobile platforms, accounted for 99% of all the growth of internet ad spending that had been seen that year versus the previous year. So, you know, this this move has has it's been coming a long time. No one is particularly surprised by this, but the fact that we can actually kind of pinpoint now when social will become the biggest advertising format in Britain, I think, is quite interesting. But there's a couple of questions I think we can address with this because tv advertising to a large extent has been able to keep its numbers as high as it has been able to because as people have moved to digital and to online and all that sort of stuff so have the tv advertisers you know they've been able to move to you know catch-up services and the streaming um, platforms from sky and itv and channel 4 and everyone so they've been able to sort of keep a lot of that revenue coming to them but I do wonder whether, because social is is so often used to discuss, you know, live TV broadcasts, and a lot of people will target those peak times in order to, um, you know, to reach audiences who are watching those particular programs. I kind of wonder whether this, that, that second screen usage alongside TV sort of meant that TV producers have unwittingly provided the catalyst for their own demise, because 
you know, if social is getting loads more advertising uh, money and, and less is going to TV because people are talking about TV programs on social and there's more of them there. So they funded it there. So it's kind of like the, if, if TV stopped being able to produce content, there'd be less social media chatter to advertise against if you see what i mean that's that's stretching reality to a certain point but i'm sure there's an aspect to that in there what do you reckon yeah i mean the thing is i'm I, i'm always somewhat baffled by the way that advertising sort of on social works um i mean i can sort of i can see the value to being very being able to target things um and we've always known that tv advertising is kind of very broad um, and I think that these days companies want to want to be a bit more specialised about how they how they target advertising. So social works a lot better, doesn't it? And then you can't do that with TV. Then you'll never be able to do it with TV. What I think um, we, we've we've realised is that event TV is the only real way to make money from advertising these days. You have to have um, something live where people have to sit through adverts and, you know, and then they're, a bit, they're huge advertisers who want, like, the Super Bowl kind of attitude to it where you charge a million quid per advert for 30 seconds um, and then, you know, that and that funds quite a decent amount of your programming for the rest of the year or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I, also I, what I'm interested in particularly here is that it's the, the ones listed, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat, Twitter's still struggling to make money out of advertising although apparently its video offering has been quite profitable uh which i find quite interesting because um twitter is i suppose in a way kind of a good video platform because it can happen immediately um and the timeline is still linear which facebook obviously refuses to allow us access to these days uh, you know a, a a chronological timeline it has to be algorithm based and whilst twitter tries its hardest to force us into those algorithm things we're still seeing stuff as it's happening so um i can sort of see why that works on twitter but uh it's Still not as profitable as Facebook. And so, you know, they've obviously hoovered up all the ad money, which is a problem if you're a publisher. Yeah, definitely. It's a big issue. And the chat room's talking about how, you know, traditional advertisers still often don't get social ads. And I think that some of them are beginning to, but one of the best examples of of a failure that I see is, is YouTube, which is sort of a social network, but also not, depending on who you ask. And you go and see their pre-rolls and you're allowed to skip an ad in fi- for most of them with you know after 5 seconds of viewing it so it's essentially the acknowledgement that if if someone doesn't isn't hooked in that first 5 seconds then you've lost them you might as well let them skip anyway because they, they they don't care but it's so it's but it's amazing to me how many adverts appear where that first 5 seconds is incredibly unengaging and just not designed specifically for that market. It's like a repurposed television ad just shoved on YouTube. Many aren't, but many are. And and it's and it, it it it's a sign that whoever sold that ad doesn't get ads on YouTube. So YouTube is, I would say, um, one of becoming quickly one of the most unpleasant platforms for content creators. Now look. I, 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 I grew up in a in a world where something like YouTube was just an impossibility. And the idea of being able to make money from doing something yourself and putting it online was, of course, completely foreign to people like us as we as we grew up. So YouTube comes along and invents this kind of 
thing where anyone can make money on the platform um, and the more people watch your stuff and, you know, the more engaged they are or whatever, the more money you make. Uh, but what a YouTuber's consistently done as I said, if you don't create videos that our advertisers morally agree with, then you're not going to make any money. If you, um, if your viewers skip an ad, then you're not going to get any money from that ad, even though you may have been exposed to the net, the brand name in that time. Now, a good advert on YouTube, like you said, would have had the brand name at the beginning. Now, I cannot stand that company Fiverr, um, but their ads, if you if you see them on YouTube, their ads are often five seconds, um, they're obnoxious, uh, and they have the brand front, left and centre at all times. You cannot avoid brand recognition with those ads. Um, so they've got it right. But again, if, you, if you're skipping ads, then you're hurting, not, you're not hurting YouTube because it's still getting money from those ad plays. You're not hurting the advertiser so much because they're, if they're doing their adverts cleverly, they will still have the name in front of you. You're, what you're doing is you're hurting the content creator. Um, and the whole YouTube advertising thing is just horrible. And YouTube is making plenty of money from it and isn't, I don't think, treating its creators correctly. Which is not true of someone like Twitch, who has a that has a much better attitude to the people making the platform. I think. Well, yeah, and indeed, a lot of people are moving to to Twitch away from YouTube um, for a variety of reasons. It may be a topic for another day. Stephen in the chat room was asking why we don't have YouTube Red, which is Google's yeah. sort of all encompassing media streaming. A subscription service that also covers the, its music platform and it launched that about three years ago i think in the us and it still isn't here in the uk despite the fact that it does exist in some markets that often don't get uh google products or a lot of tech company products until the uk's got it like <laughs> australia and um and south korea but i mean google has said it is planning to expand red subscriptions to many more countries about a hundred companies and that's according to their uh, chief executive officer uh, any views on this very very welcome of course hello at techpodcast.uk specifically on maybe on on your view on who's doing social advertising really well like what what ads or what ad experiences do you find yourself not minding at all on uh, on online on social networks and who's doing it badly Love to get some examples and some personal experience on this. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Ian, I think we should talk about the BBC iPlayer because a little bit of hoo-ha happened this week, I would say, um, because... In fact, let's take a step back here. The BB charges £150 a year-ish, or rather you have to pay about £150 a year for a TV licence fee in the UK. But despite this, it has said it won't offer streaming access to the iPlayer in mainland Europe. Now, that's unlike Netflix and Amazon, uh, as one of many, who now follow the EU's digital media portability rules that came into effect this week, which... And the, these rules let people who are resident of one country watch digital media services in other EU member states as if they were still at home. And Engadget had a good write-up about this this week. Now, the BBC has a reason. It's a reason. Whether it's a good reason is uh, for us to discuss, which is that other paid-for TV services like Netflix, they know who's accessing their content because they have a billing process connected directly with an account. Right? Sure. 
The BBC does not. Um, despite introducing a registration system for the iPlayer last year, the actual the, the the process of paying a license fee is not connected to the process of creating an account. And not every platform allows you to actually log into the iPlayer. At the Apple TV, very recently, within the last few weeks, has enabled it. But it but for the longest time, it it didn't. There was no personalization cross platform on many iPlayer platforms. So the BBC said before we just discuss this, BBC said that it is interested in being able to allow UK license fee payers to access its content while they're on holiday. They also said that they welcome the European Union's regulation to make it feasible, but they basically said there's complex technical issues to resolve. And that's kind of an NSS point, in my opinion, uh, and no uh, Sugar Sherlock point. Um, <laughs> Uh, but 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 it kind of feels like you know we're being screwed by a technical failure here. Ian, I know that you're going to have many points to address on this topic. So why don't you start with your most yeah, angry? Yeah, well, I mean that that's true. Like the whole point of the BBC's registration system was supposed to be that it would have it. it we we acknowledged that the license fee um, is becoming a problem because. Um, a lot of people won't have access to antenna-based broadcast systems. So we needed to come up with an idea, didn't we? We needed to have something where we would say, okay, well, people want to use iPlayer, but in order to use iPlayer, you have to have a TV license, which is perfectly reasonable. So let's have a registration, and then people will have to say that they've got um, a, a license, and we'll be able to check that, crucially. So if someone registers, they give their address, they say, I've get, yes, I've got a license. And then, you know, at some point you can go through um, the database and, and see who has and hasn't got licenses and go and get, you know, ask them for the money if they haven't got one. Um, now, the BBC was always very much like, we're not doing this for license fee collection. We're doing it because we want people to have a more personalised experience. Um, and no one believed them. And I still don't really believe them, or despite having ultimate faith in the BBC, I still feel like it, it, it needed to be and should be a way of making sure that people who say they don't watch the BBC but actually watch a lot of iPlayer are still paying the licence fee. Um, but, of course, the fact that they still seem un incapable of allowing access to that content in Europe is ridiculous. Um, I, I don't see what's going to stop. I mean, most I don't know how active the BBC is in blocking VPN and exit points, um, and I haven't tried using AirVPN. I um, have. And they do block it. And they do block it. Yeah, same yep. with Netflix. Um, now that's annoying in itself because ultimately there are lots of reasons for using a VPN, and not all of them have anything to do with circumventing rules. Like I, I, I know you and I both quite like the idea of having a VPN connected all the time. Um, and AirVPN is very good because it's very, very fast. But, it, you know, all of this stuff should be a matter of you register, they check you've got a license, they confirm that you've got a license. And it doesn't need to be, you know, we don't need it to be sort of so involved that they have to check that, you know, you definitely are the, you know, the, the, the owner of the license. You know, it's, it's really just to sort of keep casual evaders at bay really, because the people who don't want a TV licence will never get one, and there's nothing that's going to change that. But there should be a perk for people as a result of all this inconvenience about having to register in the first place. So why can't we have it so that it works in the EU, which seems perfectly reasonable, or even in America, or anywhere else for that matter? Well, I think it's something they've got to fix, because there are going to be too many people, I imagine, who are going to complain 
that they can access Netflix and they can access Amazon, why can't they access the iPlayer? And eventually there's going to be an FAQ page on the website updated and placed at the top because it's going to become a common question, I think. Although there is a part of me that says, if you've gone abroad, why are you sitting in your hotel room watching Netflix or iPlayer? Go and play outside on a beach. But I know that's not everyone's going on holiday. You can you can still download iPlayer shows and watch when you're not connected to the Internet. That's yes. right, isn't it? Yeah, yes. so you and, can. Yeah. So if there's something you absolutely wanted to watch, you know, you could save it up and take it on holiday with you. Well, any thoughts on this, do let us know, of course. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Should this be an easy fix? Are you bothered? Have we made a mountain out of the proverbial mole hill? Let us know. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Well, Ian, quickly, before we move into our mailbag, we talked about advertising earlier, but I wanted to return to something this week because, I'll I'll be honest with you, it took my clothes off and it tickled me in a variety of places, all of which were enjoyable because of how funny the story is. Um, An advert showing British Olympic diver Tom Daly using an HTC U11 smartphone at a swimming pool has been banned on the grounds that the instructions for the phone from the manufacturer specifically say, and I'm quoting this from the PDF of the instructions, do not expose the phone to or let the USB port come into contact with swimming pools. Now, according to the BBC, HCC apologised on Thursday and said, we are disappointed by the ASA ruling and we have removed the video from our sites. We apologise if anyone felt misled as to the handsets, handsets water-resistant capabilities. Um, HTC defended it, though, on the grounds that the, the, the phone has IP67 waterproof, uh, waterproof rating, which means it could be submerged briefly for, uh, up to a depth of one meter. And it uh-huh. said that because Daly had entered the water with his feet and held the phone above his head, the phone had not gone any deeper. However, it seems to me like a very poor choice of scenario. And obviously the ASA um, feels the same because, you know, he could have been diving out of a plane or fighting bandits on top of a, an old Western train or, or mountain boarding down Ben Nevis or something, all of which are not advised against in the manual. And I did check because that's what we do on text message. We check yeah. before we speak. Um, so, yeah, an ad showing a guy using a phone in a swimming pool banned because the instructions say you can't use this in a swimming pool that tickled me ian and you're right to be tickled but i wrote a story some time ago uh entitled please don't get your waterproof phone wet uh because um it's waterproofing phones is not is the way that they test it and i i haven't ever been been able to get actual confirmation of this but it was told to me by someone who works at a phone company um, and ip68 and similar waterproofing is done in clean water which means it's not suitable for submerging in seawater. It's not suitable for submerging in chlorinated pool water. And crucially, not really suitable for submerging in tap water. Um, so basically, I, I my thing is don't get your phone wet under any circumstances. It's an emergency protection thing. Um, it shouldn't be used. You shouldn't take it as permission to use your phone in the water. Um, and I know that no one is going to listen to me on this, but I broke an S7 uh, by submerging it in a in a jug of water. There's a if if you find if I sh- if you see the story I wrote, you'll see the the picture um, of the S7 submerged. 
Well, we'll um, include and... a link to that in the show notes sure. at techpodcast.uk. I will dump it in the chat now. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's absolutely not guaranteed. And I, and I and they said to me, oh, it's submerged in uh, seawater or something. And I said, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And of course, I have to point out really that these phones aren't waterproof. They're no. water resistant. They are. You know, water waterproofing is is quite different. Um, but have you had any fun experiences with um, submerging items in water? Uh, let us know what item you have submerged and what happened afterwards. And you can do that by sending us an email to hello at techpodcast.uk. You can also use that email address to remind us of, of any famously removed adverts that tickled you in a similar way to how this one tickled me. Let's dive into our perfectly dry mailbag this week, Ian. Um, we, I wanted to remind a listener, actually, who, who, um, who wrote in a couple of weeks ago, Neil. He asked about broadband on houseboats, and I'd mentioned at the time, I think, in answering the question, that one of our patrons, Richard Taylor, had uh, was very happy to explain how he tethers um, and gets 450 gigabytes a month to use on three, all of which can be used for tethering, um, and he's very happy to talk you through it. Uh, Neil and give you some instructions so if you want to if you're still struggling with that quandary do send us an email um, hello at techpodcast.uk and we can connect you up to to Richard who will explain further Uh, in terms of new email this week had an email come in here from Jenny says dear Nate Jenny here just listened to your latest podcast and thought I would give you a bit of information about teenagers needing the internet for schoolwork My school actively encourages GCSE students to download various apps for revision. These include Pixel, Tesomai, Memorize, uh, designed to be used on their phones as well as laptops and tablets. Teachers also use Google Classroom um, to set work, so students on their phones could well be doing their homework or revising for upcoming exams. Well, I'm sure there had to be some kids who were saying they're doing homework on their phone and actually were. So it's yeah, good to know that it is a technical possibility. This next email we uh, came in um, last week. We didn't have time to get to it last week because we're getting a lot of emails lately. But it comes from Ross and it follows on from when we were asking for examples of high technology in churches and how churches, which typically are very quite old, are embracing a lot of modern stuff. So Ross says, hi, Nathan here. Um, you asked in a recent episode if anyone had any information on use of tech within churches, so I thought I'd give you an outline of what we do at my church, Trent Vineyard, Trent Vineyard in Nottingham. We're a relatively large, for the UK, church based in a modern purpose-built warehouse on an industrial estate. From a tech perspective, services comprise 30 minutes of a band and then a talk, so we have fairly capable sound systems supported by a multi-camera video feed and large projection screens run from digital dedicated projection software. Services are not streamed live on the whole, but we do live stream certain conferences and big services such as the carol service. Talks are recorded and put out as audio and video podcasts. The church members benefit from Church Suite, a third-party church management system. But as a member, this gives us access to our information, which he points out is useful for GDPR compliance, as well as the ability to securely check in children to the kids program during the morning service. Uh, he says this works by scanning a QR co- code on your mobile phone from the from the church suite app and a name label is printed for the child to identify them to leaders and another label with a unique code on to allow you and apparently 
only you, uh, to collect your child at the end of the service. The buildings themselves have a dual purpose as a commercial conference centre, so we have free Wi-Fi coverage throughout and a cafe that operates on a tablet-based point-of-sale system. The church's own staff operate from the offices here, where they use fairly typical office services, such as a VoIP system and Office 365 servers and things for networking. Um, he's included a link here to the church, and I'm, I'll include a link to uh, to the to the website in the show notes at techpodcast.uk or in the uh, interactive notes if you've if you've got them in your podcatcher of choice. And it's just I find these examples fascinating because in my head, you know, churches are very old and very classic, and then you you hear about these apps that exist as a you know a management platform for <laughs> church services and and yeah. kids and and it's very interesting so thanks it is and i mean i will say that um often what you find in churches is you'll you'll have um you you usually get a a, a pretty diverse group of people going to church and you'll almost always find someone who is very very into technology uh for whatever reason so like you know i the the church in my village i used to go to all the time um and uh my friend steve was a, a musician super super audiophile i mean you would get on very well with him mate um, and he um, he was very very happy to spend his own money to you know make the church better, to you know in, to build systems that enabled you know better sounding music and stuff like that. Um, and he worked very hard to to achieve that. And you know people who are in church who have got a bit of extra money are usually very happy to sort of uh, throw that behind making things better for everyone else. It's quite nice. Um, and also you get a lot of you know, big American churches that sort of spearhead this kind of stuff. And, you know, for better or worse about what they're doing, they do have a lot of money and they are prepared to spend it on this kind of thing. So it's quite interesting. It definitely, it's a it's more high tech than you would ever think. Well, thanks, Ross, for stimulating uh, an interesting discussion. Always welcome to hear more on this. And we did have more emails in our mailbag um, this week, one in particular about um, about the BBC from Brian. But we're, we're out of time this, this week, so we're going to put that in uh, for next week's show in case we also get any comments about the BBC topic from this week. But we won't forget your message, Brian. And thank you to everyone who's writing in, and thanks to everyone for listening. We're going to check in now briefly with Mr Tom Merritt overseas and find out what has been going on in the wider world of tech. Tom? Hey, thanks. This week, of course, we discussed the aftermath of the shooting on the YouTube campus. We also found out why autonomous cars will take longer than you might think, but robots won't take our jobs. Shared our thoughts on the HTC Vive Pro VR headset, debated the wisdom of Apple's approach to pro users, and got the latest trends in accessibility devices from Shelley Brisbane. All that and much more at dailytechnewsshow.com. Back to you. Thank you, Tom. They took our jobs. Jobs. Um, are you afraid, Ian, that that robots are going to take over the jobs of podcasters? Do you think? I don't really care, mate. I'm. <laughs> I care. It, well, I mean, all right. I'll replace well, you with a machine. Done. Well, no. The thing, the thing is that we can keep doing this podcast for as long as we want. Like, I mean, you know, yes, I could easily be replaced by a, a robot that gets ill all the time, coughs, swears occasionally, and has terrible microphone issues, but ultimately, if you and I want to continue to do this podcast, there's nothing stopping us. Um, no, no I, so true. no, I'm not. I'm not particularly worried about being replaced by a robot. You may choose to do that at some point. Um, as a as a rule, um, I, well, I, I think I think robots are a really interesting thing because I think that society has to move towards a universal income. Uh, I think we have to stop individual benefits and make sure everyone gets the same starting amount of money, and that money needs to be enough for them to survive. Um, and we do what Bill Gates said. We tax the robots. 
you know, we, if, if a company wants to employ 5,000 robots, then it's taxed and that money goes into the state income. Well, that is one hell of an opening conversation for a topic we'll probably come back to in the future <laughs> and not at the very end of the show. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting I did write idea. an article about it. Uh, Bill Gates says tax the robots. I'll put it oh. in the chat. Yeah, please do. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you to everybody supporting us as patrons. We would love, love, love to get more of you um, to try out our extended uh, version, which have no ads, have extra stories, um, extra chat between Ian and I and, and a bunch of other stuff as well. If you'd like to give us a, uh, a try, you can do it at patreon.com forward slash UK tech. We'd love to get another couple of people um, joining up this month. It'd be fantastic. And thank you to everyone who is supporting us without the financial um backing as well those of you leaving fantastic reviews for us on itunes and telling your friends and recommending us to other people that is just as important to us as well because that is how the show gets to be spread about and ultimately some of those people may want to become patrons eventually and that's great too so no matter how you're supporting us we're incredibly grateful and we thank you from the bottom the very bottom and i'm looking at where the bottom of my heart would be here it's about here difficult one to judge that isn't it yeah it's but it's from there that I'm I'm grateful. It's from the very bottom of my heart. And we'll continue to do so in the future weeks. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.